last thing I get to do is I get to introduce the person doing their testimony today. So um, we, uh, we've been talking about who we are, and um, that's the sermon series that Daryl has been doing. And we've just been getting to know people through their testimonies, um, and it's been amazing. Hasn't it been amazing? I've loved it so much because there's people that I talk to every week on Sunday that, you know, you get to hear the testimony. It's like, wow, you know, I just love, I, I'm totally about getting to know someone on a deeper level. <laughs> and I don't like just surface friendships and, and things like that. I love to know people's stories and what God has um, done in their lives and brought them through and all those things. So, um, and the point of it is the fact that we all are worth knowing and we are all worth loving. You are worth knowing. Your story is important. Even when you feel like it's, it's something small. I mean, we've all had that. Or if you feel like it's way too bad to share. We are all worth knowing and worth loving. And God has, God's doing something in our, all of our lives. And it's worth um, knowing the family that you're standing in in this room. So um, today I get to uh, introduce my mommy. Because my mom's going to give her testimony today. <laughs> you can come up here. Her name's Janita. She's amazing. I'm going to try not to make her cry like I did in the first service. But this woman is the strongest woman I know. And the prettiest, too. And um, her, her story is, I mean, I've heard her story my whole life growing up. And she's always been very honest and open and vulnerable with me um, and my siblings. And that's such a blessing to have my mom be so honest because I've learned a lot through the things that she's gone through. Um, and she's always been cheering me on to, to make the right choices and to do the right thing and to always trust the Lord. And it's because of where she's been that I've learned this. And um, so let's just, if you'll reach out your hand, I'm gonna pray over her. God, I love my mom and I thank you so much for her. God, I thank you for every part of her story. I thank you for every detail in her life and all the things that you've brought her into and all the things you've brought her out of and, God, just how you've used it all for her good. And, Lord, today it gets to be used for our good and we get to learn more about her, God. So just give her peace, give her confidence. God, just let your spirit be with her. And, um, God, just speak to all of our hearts and let us be open and um, let us be vulnerable to uh to let stories in of the people that are around us. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in a Christian home, and I was at church pretty much any time the doors were opened. But I really didn't start living for Jesus until I was about 34. My dad was a good guy. He, he loved me. I know he did, but he just didn't show it a lot. He grew up without a dad in the home. And so he never, I don't really remember him saying that he loved me very many times. So I didn't know who I was as a woman, as a daughter. And so I sought love and acceptance elsewhere. When I was 17, I left home and I moved in with my boyfriend a few months later, he became pretty abusive, and I left. Then I discovered I was pregnant. I didn't tell him because he was out of the picture, 
and I didn't really want him to be a part of my life. When I told my parents, they decided that I would have an abortion. I don't remember there being any discussion about any other options, but I also knew that if I had a baby, I would be on my own with no support. I also knew I would struggle to support that child alone. And at 17, I knew that that was kind of impossible. So I didn't feel like I really had a choice. So going to that appointment, I remember the overwhelming feeling of dread. I knew in my heart that I was killing my baby. But I tried to listen to what the doctors and the nurses were saying and the abortion industry said. Things like, oh, it's not a baby, it's just tissue. And you'll be fine. You can just go back to your life after this is over. Well, that's not what happened. I cried all the way back. I cried in secret for weeks because nobody understood why I was so upset. I was depressed and I hated myself. But I stuffed all those feelings down and got on with my life like I was expected to do. After that, I didn't talk about it. I didn't even let myself feel anything about it. Didn't think about it or anything. About a year later, I met my first husband. Um, we were into drugs and alcohol. And so Jesus was not anywhere on my radar. We were married about a month the first time he ever hit me. And it only got worse from there. When I found out I was pregnant, I was so excited. But he was not. And he gave me an ultimatum. It's either me or that baby. Once again, I felt like I had no choice. I didn't have the confidence in myself to know that I could support a baby by myself. Because at that time, I felt like I had to have a man in my life somebody in my life. So to prove to him my love for him, I had my second abortion. After another year of physical and verbal and emotional abuse, we divorced. And I was so broken and still so desperate for love. After my divorce, I moved back home and began going to church again. That's where I met my second husband. We were so young and in love, and we got married a year after we met, and my fairy tale was finally happening. Although things weren't always good, they were better than they were in my first marriage, and so I was content. After a year after, um, a year after we were married, I got pregnant with our first child. We were both so excited to start a family. I was excited, but I was also terrified because I thought God might punish me for what I had done. All those things went through my head, like, what if something happens? What if I lose it? What if, I, what if it's not normal? All those what ifs. But Rachel was born perfect and healthy and happy and such a blessing. Our sweet little bundle of joy. I was so thankful for her. And I praised God that she was perfect. 
our marriage became increasingly difficult for both of us, and that led to outside relationships on both sides. I felt I didn't measure up to his expectations and sought comfort and acceptance elsewhere. I began an affair with a coworker, and we'll call him JD, that lasted about a year. And even though my husband and I moved away during that period of time, I continued to see him, at least for a few months. After but the next, for the next five years or so, my marriage was okay. Things were tolerable. I was living life being a mom and being a wife. When Rachel was seven, I got pregnant with our second bundle of joy, Catherine. And she too was perfect and happy and healthy. And then a year after, two years after that, much to our surprise, we got our third bundle of joy, Austin. All three perfect. God was so good. A couple of years later, our marriage began to crumble. Feelings of inadequacy, inability, and disappointment set in. So what did I do? I turned to the last person that gave me encouragement and acceptance, JD. We decided to meet and spend the weekend together. And I knew the minute it happened. And I started bargaining with God. Oh, God, please don't let me be. I'll give you my life. I know you can do anything. You can stop this. But God had other plans. I was pregnant. And I knew it wasn't my husband's. Because after our third child, he had had a vasectomy. And it was hard to hide that pregnancy from him because I was so sick and I was beginning to show. But I knew what I was going to do. I didn't even think about it twice. I knew I was going to have another abortion. So I contacted JD and told him what I wanted to do. And he decided, he told me he would pay for it. And we met for the last time so I could get the money from him and agreed never to see each other again. And we never did. I made the arrangements and told my husband a lie about where I was going and why. And I was just going through the motions. I, I didn't let myself acknowledge the feelings that I was feeling. I stuffed them way deep down inside and thought that I could return to my life. I had before, right? When I got back home, I thought it was strange that my sickness wasn't going away. And I was, in fact, it was actually getting worse. And about three weeks later, I discovered I was still pregnant. I don't know how or what happened, but obviously the abortion didn't happen. But it was too far along for me to go the easy route this time. This time the procedure would take two days. And I couldn't do it alone. They wouldn't let me do it alone. I tried asking every friend, every non-friend 
that I could find to go with me. But nobody could. So I finally had to tell my husband what had happened. And I remember at the time telling God, Lord, I've just messed up my life so much. And only you can fix this. So I totally surrender. I'm yours. No matter what happens, no matter if I lose my family, I'm yours. So my husband and I went for that abortion. He was kind and attentive while we were going. He could see the pain that I was in. A few weeks later, my husband told me that he had a coworker whose wife worked for the Crisis Pregnancy Center. And she suggested that I go to a post-abortion class. And at first I was thinking, I don't think so. I don't need anybody telling me what I've done wrong. I don't need any counseling. I'm fine. I'm fine. So I thought. But after some persuasion from him, I called the center to at least talk to them. Then I found out it was a Bible study. And since I had surrendered my life to Jesus and told him that I would do anything and go anywhere he led me, I knew that's where I was supposed to go. It was hard work. It wasn't easy. And there were times I wanted to give up and run the other way and just bury my head in the sand. But Jesus got down in that pit that I had dug for myself. And he walked me out of it. Through that study, I found out for the first time who I really was in Christ. I found out how much he loved me and that he really did die just for me. I found freedom from shame and guilt and self-loathing. I discovered that even after all I had done, I was worthy of his love and his forgiveness. He renewed my way of thinking, and I was a changed person. That person that went through all of that study is not the same person that's standing here today. This is also where I discovered my purpose, what God had created me for, to help free other women from the guilt and shame of abortion. About 15 years ago, God prompted me to write my own curriculum. And at first I was like, what? I'm not a writer. I can't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to write. But then being obedient, I started. And then I stopped several times. It's taken me 15 years to write the thing. But the, prompt, the prompting of God and my girls, they wouldn't let me alone about this. I finally finished it. And next month, I will teach the first class here at Moore. God's timing is always perfect. He knew the right place and the right time. Because any other time in my life, things would not have been right. They wouldn't have been ready. I wouldn't have been ready. And I'm so thankful for this church for giving me this opportunity because there aren't many churches 
that would allow this kind of curriculum in their church. And because there's such a stigma on women who have had an abortion, we don't admit it and we don't talk about it, especially in church. But don't listen to the, the, the lies of Satan. He wants to keep you bound and filled with shame and condemnation and guilt. But Jesus wants to set you free. He will never point his finger at you. He does not condemn you. He loves you, and he wants to take those burdens from you. He wants to heal your heart. So um, if you or anybody you know could benefit from this study, please feel free to contact me. I've got some cards. And you can also reach me at this email. Thank you all so much for letting me share my story with you. I just so appreciate the testimonies that we've heard through this series, all six of them. I, you know, I really appreciate them because they've just been so honest and so real and so and so raw. They come up here and they just bare their soul. Charlie Rowe, Stephanie Hansen, Frankie Garcia, Leticia. Paula Butler last week talking about how she uh, just needed people to get through a time in her life. And people may not have thought that was a heartfelt testimony, but you know that's hard for people to admit sometimes. Is I don't know how I'd make it without you guys. And, uh, and then today, Janita. I'm thankful for it because I didn't realize this whenever the Lord was leading me to who would give these testimonies. I didn't realize that um, they all had something in common that they'd all been born again years ago, that they'd all been saved, and, and Jesus had come into their life at an early age. And then every one of them had gone through a tremendous struggle after they'd come to know the Lord. So many times in church you hear these testimonies, you know, before Jesus, Jesus came, now everything's great. And I like these testimonies because they're real. Because many times people come to know the Lord, and then things don't always work great. But God never leaves us or forsakes us, and he's there. And I love that kind of testimony. And I so appreciate these people being so vulnerable. Um, the word vulnerable, it's, it's, I've had it in my notes all week, and I knew I was going to talk about being vulnerable. And it's like, I guess, because I, I knew that. every. It's been amazing how many times I've heard that word this week. And uh, just people being vulnerable and having so much courage to get up here and do this. You say, well, I don't know what, I don't know about the courage. Well, a lot of y'all wouldn't do this. <laughs> a lot of you wouldn't. A lot of you would not get up here and let anyone know what's really gone on in your life. Because we really just want people to know what we want them to know. We just want to put on a facade, and this is the person I am. Don't look behind the curtain. And the truth is, I love it when someone comes up here and says, here's what's behind the curtain, and I'm okay with God, and I want you to know who I am. I love that. It takes a tremendous amount of honesty and courage. These words, vulnerable and courage, we hear them all the time, but I don't know if we really know what they mean. 
kind of like the Princess Bride. I don't know that you know the meaning of that word. <laughs> Vulnerable. It means this. And it's, it, it seems like it's pretty dramatic, but it says it's the quality or state of being exposed. Some of you, some of us, we'd do anything but be exposed because we don't want people to know our stuff. And so when you're vulnerable, you're being exposed and you're open to the possibility of being attacked, even harmed. Either emotionally or physically. And I know that's true with people that get up here and they've bared their soul before you guys. They've come up here and they've just told the honest truth of who they are, their journey. Good, bad, ugly. And they're bearing their soul. And they run the risk of being so exposed that it could actually cause them emotional harm. Because people could attack them. You think, I don't know. But I do. I know because I make a living speaking and I'm pretty vulnerable because I do speak from my heart. Sometimes I share a little too much, I feel like. And it does make you vulnerable. And what happens whenever people speak up here is, you know, one speaks and here's, you know, they open their heart and then others judge. And I'm used to that. But let me tell you, it can still cause you emotional harm. Courage. Didn't know this, but it's interesting that courage is from a Latin word. Core is the root, and it means heart. And the root of that word, the root, the, the initial meaning of courage coming into being a word was that it was synonymous with telling the story of who you are with your whole heart. That's what courage is. When they came up with the word courage, it came from that Latin word of heart because it was about someone that would dare to bear their soul and to have the courage to let other people see them for who they are. So yeah, all these testimonies took a lot of guts, took a lot of courage because it exposed people. You know, you read these words and they seem like they're a little dramatic, especially the word for vulnerable. But you know, Jesus, he knew very well about being vulnerable. He knew very well about having courage because Jesus did speak from his heart. Jesus did tell it like it was. In fact, he said this right before he died. He was telling his disciples, if the world hates you, kind of implying they will, keep it in mind that they hated me first. Now I was reading that and the Lord just just kind of enlightened me this week, and he was just talking to me about this verse. And, and he, he said, you know, traditionally we think this, word, this uh, scripture means the world, the secular world. And I know we can turn on the TV, and there's a real anti-Christian bias out in the world today. You can see it many times uh, when you listen to uh, television. But, you know, Jesus tied two things together. He said, the world that hates you is the same world that hated me. What world hated Jesus? Not the secular world. Do you know there's not one recorded incident in the word where the world, the sinful world, that world out there that everybody wants to, you know, separate themselves from and all that stuff. It's like there's not one time that that world 
hated Jesus. Not one time. The world that hated Jesus was the religious community. They hated him for a whole number of reasons. They thought he broke the law. They thought he embraced people that they thought run clean. And they thought they had biblical reason to hate him. The religious community hated him. And he's saying, the same world that hated me is going to be the same world that hates you. If you're my followers. In fact, in Acts 2, I mean Acts 21, there's this crazy story. And you don't hear it much because it's, it's just really kind of a bizarre story. It's about Paul. And it's when Paul, you know, Paul was the apostle that went out to the Gentile, to the Gentile world and brought them into Christ. And Paul got in a lot of hot water because Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. We all know that. But when God gave him the charge to go into the Gentile world, he said, I just want you to take them Jesus, take them the good news. And the Gentiles were being saved coming to Jesus without first becoming Jews. There is a way for a Gentile to become a Jew. You have to go through a process. It's much like joining a church. You come in, you say the right things, you're baptized, you become a member of that church. You become, there's a process to becoming a member of, that, of the church. It's like to be a Jew, there was the same thing. There was even a baptism to become a Jew. And the Jews were upset because Paul was out preaching to Gentiles and telling them, you don't have to become a Jew, you can come directly to Jesus. And the Jewish world hated it. The religious community hated him for it. The same community that hated Jesus for it now was the same community that was hating the early church for it. They hated Paul for it. So there's a story in Acts 21 where Paul actually goes and sees all the big church leaders in Jerusalem. Paul comes in and he's, he, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And he comes in and he starts telling all the the, the religious community people, the, even the Christian community, he's saying, gosh, this is what's happening with the Gentiles, and they're all getting saved. And, and, and James, the head of the church, says, well, Paul, there's a lot of people here that don't think you're really a good Jew because they think you're telling people that Moses' law doesn't matter, so you need to go and do something Jewish so people think that you're a good Jew. So Paul takes about four guys to the temple, and he's doing a purification rite with them just so people can see him in the temple, and they'll know, okay, he's cool. He's, he's following the Mosaic law, so we, we can be okay with him. He was trying to appease them. He was trying to appease the religious community. Let me just tell you something about religion. It never is enough. You can't do enough to appease this religious community. I just want to tell you that. So once you start down that road, it won't ever work. So Paul goes, and he goes to the temple. He's trying to be a good boy, and he's in there doing it. And all of a sudden, these people see him in the temple. And he's in there, and he's trying to do the right thing. And they say, hey, that's that guy that's going to the Gentiles. And then somebody else says, yeah, he brought a Gentile into the inner court. It wasn't even true. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good lie. I mean, let's just tell it like it is. He brought this Gentile. He didn't even do that. But the temple, the, the temple just got into an uproar. This, this crowd, this mob just came around Paul, and they began to tear at him, and they were going to kill him. And all the Roman soldiers, they ran into the temple, grabbed Paul, put him in chains. They said, what's going on? And they were all in confusion. 
and they were still trying to kill him. It said that the Roman soldiers had to lift Paul up over their head to keep him from the Jews wanting to kill him. The religious community so hated him, they just wanted to kill him. And they were taking him to the barracks. So they're going up the stairs. They're carrying Paul above their head. They get to the top of the stairs, and Paul says to the commander, can I just talk to these people? I'm a Jew. I, I just want to, can I talk to these religious people and just sell them? They need to calm down. And he says, yeah. So Paul starts telling them about himself, how he's a Jew, like they're a Jew. He understands. He's speaking in Hebrew. They're all listening to him. They're like, okay. And he's saying, look, I'm a Jew like you're a Jew. I studied. I'm as a Pharisee. You know this. I even used to persecute the church. I was so zealous for God. And then he says, but then Jesus met me on the Damascus road. He starts telling his testimony. And he, he said, Jesus came to me and he saved me. I was struck blind and Jesus healed me and opened my eyes and told me of all the things I was going to do. He's telling them all this stuff. He's trying to tell them he's had an experience with God that he was a Jew and he had an experience with God that brought him to Christ and his, his experience is real. And he says, and God gave me a special charge. I want you to understand me. I'm not a heretic. I'm not crazy. I'm not against the Jews. I'm not against Moses. I just want you to understand me. It wasn't enough. You can't appease a religious community. And so it gets down to the end. And he's telling them what God had told him. And it said, this is Paul speaking. He said, and then the Lord said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened until he said that word. <laughs> that word, Gentiles. Doesn't do the same thing today that it did then, because we're all Gentiles. Aren't we glad that somebody was gutsy enough to stand up to the religious community and allow us to come in? You do realize that if you had given your testimony in a, Judas, a Jewish Christian church, they'd have run you out of town on a rail. You do know that because you weren't accepted. Somebody had the courage to step over a line. His name was Peter and went to Cornelius's house, which was a big deal. And now Paul had the guts to stand up to the religious community and say, no, the Gentiles are coming in and they're not becoming Jews. And aren't we glad they did? Because the Jews said it was against the law. They listened to him until he said that word God sending you to the Gentiles? You know why they hated him? So then they went nuts. They said, this guy didn't even deserve to live. Why did they go so nuts? Because they thought the word said that Gentiles could not come to God. They had to become Jews first. That's why they were mad. The same reason the religious community gets mad today. It, it's you have to become what I accept before you can go on and be with God. It has never changed in thousands of years. They wanted to kill him. Two reasons. For the Gentiles, they were mad that he was going and bringing the Gentiles in. And number two is, he said, God told him that? <laughs> God would never say that. That's contrary to his word. Tilt. They had a right to kill him. He was saying God said something that God wouldn't say. 
You know, when you stand up and you give a testimony, you're exposing your soul. You're telling your own story. I don't know what God says to everybody out there. I've heard, I'm a pastor, I've been a pastor for 20 years, I've heard some stuff that I would consider a little out there that God said to people. I don't know what to do with that other than to love them and never to discredit them because I realize that Scripture has biblical evidence that sometimes God says things that we don't understand. We just don't understand. The religious community goes nuts because the religious community doesn't embrace anything they can't answer. If it doesn't have an answer that fits into my understanding, then we reject it. That's what religion does. Because religion attempts to answer questions that are a mystery. They're a mystery. God works in the mysterious ways. His ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. He does things differently than we would do. There's just many times we just aren't going to understand, and that's why it's called faith. It's not called knowing. It's called faith. Sometimes you just have to believe in the unseen. You have to believe in something you don't understand. You have to believe in something where you don't have all the answers. You know, the secular world was the world that hated Je was not the world that hated Jesus it was the religious community and all these years later i don't think it's ever changed you know joel osteen i don't know what you think about him he's kind of polarizing i don't know why i listen to him i think he's one of the most encouraging pastors i've ever heard in my life i think he's amazing people hate him i was reading the thing the reason we hate joel osteen that was a headline one of, one of the first, he's rich. I thought, he doesn't even take a salary from his church. He's rich because he writes books people want to read. He fills up stadiums, not with just religious people, with all kinds of people because he's encouraging and he preaches good news. Yet, when you look at it, you'll see things like this. Why I call Joel Osteen a false teacher. That wasn't written by the world. That was written by the religious community. Same thing with this man, Bill Johnson. I know this guy. I've met this guy. I've, I've spent time with him. He's been in our church two times. He is probably the closest thing we have to a, an apostle that's out there. Brilliant, humble, kind, generous. Yet people write, I don't understand why Bill Johnson and Bethel Church and Reading are not classified as a cult. That wasn't the secular world that wrote that. That was the religious community that wrote that. Then they said this, Bill Johnson and Chris Valentin, they've both been, both been in here. Both great men of God, both great teachers of the Word of God. And it says, Bill Johnson and Chris Valentin put their own words above the Word of God. There is nothing more untrue that I've ever read in my life. And that wasn't written by the world. That was written by the religious community that stands and makes judgment because they are out there. Same things with Mike Bickle. There's Mike and Diane Bickle meeting the Pope. I mean, Mike Bickle's probably one of the most humble guys you've ever met in your life. 
started IHOP in 1999, left a church he was pastoring that was 3,000 members, left that because they didn't want to do prayer, and he goes down the road and buys a mobile home and starts House of Prayer in a mobile home. Now it's a huge, huge enterprise. Mike Bickle lives in a duplex. He's never even moved into a house. He drives a used car. He sells so much resource material, it's in the millions of dollars a year. And he doesn't keep any of it. He gives it all back to IHOP. Yet, he goes and meets this pope who's one of the most humble popes I've ever heard. And this is what I find about him. Mike Bickle and the pope, when a false prophet, when a false prophet meets a false Christ. I'm like, wasn't written by the world. And Richard Rohr, who is one of the greatest theologians of our day, one of our modern-day theologians, and I don't agree with everything Richard Rohr writes. Who, who does? I don't agree with what 100% with what anybody writes. But why, why do things like this? Why would you say, warning, New Age friar Richard Rohr is making a comeback? It, it's like the religious community thinks there's something virtuous about attacking their own. Just because they don't think like you. Just because they have truth that maybe God didn't reveal to you, and so you say it's false. Maybe it's something that you can't quite grasp, so you reject it. And so we throw out negative attacks. You see, when that's the deal about vulnerability. You expose yourself, and all these guys, because they're so well-known, they're so out there, and they write books and everything, they're so exposed that... You'll, you'll find something to attack them with. That blows my mind. It's been my experience, though. This is a verse you don't hang on your refrigerator, but it says in 2 Timothy that all those that desire to live godly in Jesus Christ are going to suffer persecution. And I found that to be true, but I just never found it to be true in the world. Every time I've moved on with God in my own experience, you know, it, I, I came to the Lord through tithing. God proved to me he was real through tithing. But I remember the first time I told somebody that I was going to tithe and they were a, a Christian brother and, and they were in from a very conservative church. They, they said, well, you're, you're crazy. You're poor. You have a baby, you have a crummy house, crummy job. You don't have any money. And you're going to give money you don't have to the church? I, I remember it. I thought... But you see, it didn't fit a religious mindset because you can't explain how you can give away 10% of your income and end up with more money at the end of the month. That's called faith, and it's something religion will never embrace. They only embrace logic and what they can figure out. And so I was opposed right off the bat. I didn't realize. It, it, it kind of made me feel stupid. I thought, well, am I just an idiot? You know, I remember thinking that. I was a brand-new believer. Worship, you know. Remember the first time I raised my hands? I didn't feel stupid because the world made me feel stupid. Yeah. I felt stupid because I thought people around me were judging me. Yeah. Baptism in the Holy Spirit? It was my experience, but a lot of people told me I was nuts. A lot of people said, no, you got that when you were saved. And I was like, no, in 1976, I was born again. But I, didn't, I wasn't baptized in the Holy Spirit until 1995, and I know it. But people would tell me I was wrong. 
God would never, you know, God wouldn't do that, you know. One thing I've noticed about the religious community too is that if their experience doesn't match your experience, then they're going to think your experience is bogus. Have you ever noticed that? You might have a vision from the Lord, and the first person that's going to tell you that it's goofy is somebody that's from the religious community. Tongues, I don't even have to go there. I mean, people don't know anything. They think tongues are wrong. They don't know anything. They couldn't tell you a Bible verse about anything, but they'll tell you, oh, no, that tongues. You've got to be careful of that. Prophecy? It was said about more, this church, that we tell fortunes in our basement. And I said, we don't have a basement. But why would anybody say that? That wasn't the world that said that. It was the religious community that said that. Because, you know, we're going to poo-poo on prophecy because you're going to say, like, God's talking to you and you're talking to people and that's goofy. Never mind that in 1 Corinthians it says, pursue prophecy above all other gifts. But if you don't understand the mystery of it, you reject it. Just reject it. It's stupid. It's gone. That dispensation's passed. And then healing. I mean, when we started more, one of our greatest desires is to see God heal in a miraculous way. And we've seen a little bit of it, not near what we wanted to see, not near enough. But we have always pushed for healing. We have healing rooms. We have had them for years and years and years and years. Everybody come in there and get healed? No. Some do. Not everybody. But, you know, Lyndall, one time, visited in the hospital and uh, ran into a leader from the religious community and, and knew our story. And Lyndall said, hey, how you doing? And that guy said to Lyndall, he says, what are you doing here? And Lyndall said, well, I'm visiting for some of our folks in the hospital. He said, well, I wouldn't think any of your folks needed to be in the hospital. And Lyndall was like, message you received. Thank you. I'm just saying. It's so funny to me how we, we, want, we want a move of God. We know how important unity is. John 17, the last prayer Jesus prays, Father, I pray that they're one as you and I are one. So important to be unified in the Spirit. So important. Yet we spend so much time judging and even discrediting some of our own brothers and sisters because of their experiences. Romans 15, Paul wrote, May God that gives peace and encouragement help you, help you to live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for the followers of Jesus Christ. I love this. This is Paul saying, I just pray that God will help you. Why? Because we need help. We need help to, to dwell together in harmony. We need help. And the only way we can ever dwell together in harmony is to have God's power help us do it. And then he says, as is fitting for the followers of Christ. You know, I'm, I'm starting a series in September called, what does, it, what does it Mean to Be Christian? Because I really don't know that we know that. 
I think we know what it means to be a church member. I think we know what it means to be, you know, uh, maybe biblically literate. I just don't know that we know what it means to be Christian. And so I want to go through it. I'm going to start in the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to go through, and I want us to really end up believing and understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because we do need that, because that's where we'll find complete harmony with one another. We must get to a place where instead of exposing people, we cover people. You remember the story of Noah? There was one that exposed their, their dad, and there were those that covered their dad. And the one that was godly was the one that covered. And that's what we're to do. Paul said, I mean, Peter said it great last week in my message. You know, fervently love one another. Because love covers a multitude of sin. Doesn't take it away, just covers it. So that when we see one another, we don't see what's wrong. We see what's good. And we learn to dwell together. So let's stand up together. Ministry team, if you'll come up. I just, I just want to pray for you because I think probably some of you are trying to live for God and you're finding it difficult. Maybe you're meeting opposition. And I just want to pray for you to be encouraged. And I just want to say to you, don't be afraid to have a unique encounter with God. Don't be afraid. If, time, if, if your relationship with God is different than anyone else's, that's not a bad thing. And no one needs to tell you that it is. So I want to pray for you to be encouraged. I want to pray for you to be encouraged to go on your own road with God. And so if you feel that in your heart, I, God, I just pray for those right now that feel like they're, they're almost embarrassed to tell their story about the way that they've encountered you. They're almost embarrassed to say some of the visions that they've had or some of the dreams that they've had or some of the encounters that they've had. Maybe it's just a, a little bit unusual, but God, I pray that you would let us have big enough hearts and big enough minds to let them share with us and for us to embrace their encounter with you and to call it legit because it's their encounter and not ours. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to walk in faith and not by sight. I pray, God, that you would teach us to live in mystery and to be okay with that, even if we don't have the answers. Thank you, God, for that. I pray, Lord, for all those now that maybe they're in this room and that maybe they've been a naysayer. Maybe they've been that negative Nelly that wants to just discount some of the things that people have gone through. Maybe there's, there's people in here that are angry that some people about some people's experiences with you, God. I pray for them to have peace. And I pray, God, that you would just... Cover this place with your peace and truth and with your love and your grace. Help us, Lord, to live together in harmony, to love one another. And I just thank you, God, for this church. I thank you for this, that it is a safe place. And we ask, God, that you would protect this environment and keep the enemy at bay. 
And we thank you, God, that you're so careful to, to encourage us in our walk. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you need prayer today, please come up and get it. If you need healing or if you need an encouragement or just need prayer for your heart, I just ask that you would come up and get some prayer. Amen. Thank you all for coming.